before, uh, before we go into it, I'm, I just want to say this, this part of Scripture is a, has been a very difficult one for me because I would say as I've been meditating on it, it's an area of my life that really frustrates me. And you'll understand as we go through it, it's a, uh, it deals with this question. We've been talking about grace. So the first week, we talked about what's grace. Second week, we talked about what grace is not. It's not Jesus plus. Last week, we talked about how grace works. It works on human individuals. So our whole theme through the book of Galatians is going to be the issue of grace. But there's something that's always frustrated me, and it's this question. And it really is what I think Paul is dealing with in this section of Scripture. The question is, why do some places that preach grace the most, I mean, they shout it. They say, we are saved by faith through grace. Why do they fail to practice it? In fact, sometimes these places that preach grace become prisons for people. And they sometimes, not only are they prisons, but they actually do way more harm than good. I have a number of people in my family that don't want to step foot in church again. Because if that's Jesus, what I, what I had in that church, I don't want him. And to me, this really bothers me. Partially because I'm a compliant guy, so I don't push against the pricks. I'm a nice guy. And I realize a lot of humble, nice guys get run over. So I think sometimes my job as a pastor is not to let people get run over. But I think there's a brand of Christianity that has foistered itself upon us, which is nothing but garbage. I know that sounds bad, but it's true. It's garbage. One person, he's got a blog, he says, the, the title of the blog is, When the Church Hurts You. That's the title of his blog, When the Church Hurts You. And he says, we have a problem. And he was an associate pastor who left. He's been thrown out of a couple churches. He said, we have a problem, and it's twofold. It's one, it's the leadership behind the scenes. But he also said there's abusers that never are called out for what they do to people. He says the church, in many ways, some churches are like a bathtub without the plug-in. You have people that come in, but so many more people are escaping through the drain because they are not finding Christ in the church. And it's a tragedy. How does this happen? Why does this happen? Because I believe in every church there's a faction underneath the surface that I would call joy stealers. That's the title of this message, the joy stealers. And if you're not careful, they can set the culture at a church. And if they set the culture of a church they destroy grace. And when grace is destroyed, there's no joy. It's repression. It's judgment. It's silent death. And I don't ever want that to happen in this church. Ever. And I believe that's what Paul's going to deal with here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's read through it, and then we'll go through what's happening. Paul was given his testimony last week, and he talked about how he came back to the apostles, and then, then he started his public ministry, and that's where it begins in verse 2. Fourteen years later, he went to the church in Antioch, which is in Syria, and he started teaching there, and they 
laid their hands on him, and they sent him out as a missionary. Actually, it took Paul 14 years before he got into full-time Christian service. He was a tent maker before that. Anyhow, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas. I took Titus also along. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Even though he was a Greek, this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle, to the Jews was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That's where we're going to stop. My, uh, really, our objective is one of the main objectives I have is I want you to evaluate yourself and just ask, do you have a seed in you that has a possibility to grow into a joy stealer. And if it does, it's dangerous. So we're going to ask, what is a joy stealer? What's going on? What's the answer? So what's going on? That's the first thing we're going to ask. If you notice in verse 1, it said he went up to Jerusalem. He was in ministry for 14 years. And he went up to Jerusalem to go talk to the apostles, specifically Peter, James, and John. And so what was he going to the apostles? They were having a council there. Actually, in my opinion, this is one of, historically speaking, the tradition of Christianity, maybe the most important council ever to ensue. They were deciding on doctrine. What is going to be the message of the Christian church from now until ever? And how this went would have huge, major ramifications. And that's why Paul says in verse 2, that he went there to make sure he wasn't running his race in vain. He was preaching the gospel, the gospel of grace, and he wanted to go to the Jerusalem council to say, are we on the same page here? Paul wasn't going to change his gospel, but if they weren't preaching the same gospel, man, right from the beginning, there could be a schism in the Christian church, a division. So this was very serious. It's the Jerusalem council of A.D. 50. So the, what happened is they brought a test case. And the question was this. Is, really, this is underneath the whole surface. When it comes to the gospel, it's what we talked about two weeks ago. They were deciding, is grace enough? Is it enough for salvation? Is that all you need? That was the question. They had uh, Exhibit A. They brought this guy by the name of Titus. Titus was a Greek. Titus probably was saved in some church around the Galatian area, northern Turkey. 
So they brought Titus as exhibit A because as a Greek, he didn't feel he had to be circumcised. That was a Jewish sign of covenant relationship with God and the Jews. And he was a Greek, and he's like, I'm not Jewish. I don't feel the need to be circumcised. And so what you have is you have Exhibit A. And with Exhibit A, you had, first of all, the advocates. The advocates who brought him. The advocates were Paul and Barnabas. Paul was the one preaching, you are saved by faith alone. He brought Barnabas. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. He's the one that went alongside Paul and encouraged him and helped him along the way. And both of those guys saw the fruit in Titus' life. So you can imagine, as they bring Titus in, they're questioning him, and they say, Titus, do you believe in Christ? Absolutely. He changed my life. Are you circumcised? No. I don't think I need to be. And then, as he said no, you can hear behind the surface grumbling. Oh, oh, oh. And those are the accusers. Let me show you the accusers in Acts chapter 15. We read this before, but I just, Acts 15 is the historical account of the Jerusalem Council. Who are the accusers? You'll see. Acts 15 verse 1. And five. Verse one, if you notice in your Bibles, it probably says the council at Jerusalem, same deal. Verse one, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute. So you see, the advocates and the accusers are not in agreement. The accusers, verse 5, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, so they were Pharisees, going to Galatians, they call them Judaizers. But they stood up. They're probably very influential men. And they said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. There is no wiggle room in that statement. That's, I'll tell you what, that's the way joy stealers are. They are more than firm in their convictions. They don't budge. They must be. And I'm telling you, when you get a group of them with high credentials, they are powerful men, powerful people. And so then they brought their case to the apostles. And the apostles, verse 6 said, they met to consider the question. So if you notice, this was a heavy, heavy debate. If it wasn't for the accusers, really, there would be no debate. They had to hash this out because the accusers were standing firm and not budging. What's wrong with the accusers? What's their hang-up? Why can't they allow Titus to be set free? I'm going to give you four characteristics of accuser. Actually, the, I believe out of, a, out of a deep desire, out of a deep desire to be faithful to what God presented, they are very firm. But if you go back to Galatians, it says something about them. It's kind of scary, verse 4. Verse 4 is the verse we're going to camp on for a while. It says, this matter arose because, it wouldn't have arose if you didn't have the accusers, but this matter arose 
because some false brothers. So they weren't genuine. Why weren't they genuine? My, the reason why I don't believe they were genuine is they did not understand grace. They didn't get it. And so the only way they can understand a relationship with God is through law, through tradition, through what you do on the outside, what is right and what's wrong. False brethren, the way you can tell false brethren is they don't understand inside transformation. To them, everything is forced from the outside, the way you look and what you do. That's all that matters. But that's not salvation. What characterizes them? I'd say three things. First of all, profile of a joy stealer. This is, first thing it says is these false brothers had infiltrated our ranks. Infiltrated. It's the idea of sneaky, false. They have the appearance that they are part of the group, often very respectful, but secretly they want control. You know what psychologists call this? They call it passive-aggressive behavior. Passively, they don't really say anything, but inside, they're angry, and they want to stop and control everybody around them. But outside, you'd never guess. You'd never guess. They want control, and they usually form groups behind the scenes. They have factions. Usually, it starts off in four stages. First one is just a grumpy face. I don't like it. Then they cross their arms. That would be stage two. Sit back a little bit. Stage three is they're very concerned with the direction of the ministry. Very concerned. Stage four, they're offended. They get personally offended. You offended them by your freedom. It's, uh, it's, an, it's, it's really an issue of control. I was reading something very interesting. Listen to this. This is a sociological report on people outside the church and people inside the church. And I thought this was fascinating. One sociologist said, outside of the church, people that don't go to the church, if you take that general population, 75% of people outside of the church don't like authority. They like independence. They want glory and they don't care if it's gained at the expense of others. They don't mind conflict because they want to win, so they'll fight to win. And so one of the reasons they don't go to church, they don't want authority. They don't want anybody telling me what to do. 75% of people. 25% of people outside the church, they like authority. They're okay with it. They don't want conflict. They will run, hide, and they will avoid conflict at all costs. And so they're peacemakers. The sociologist said, now, if you do a general population study inside the church, it's exactly the opposite. 75% of people in the church are conflict avoiders. They're peace lovers. They're kind people. 25%, they don't like authority. They want to win. And this sociologist was evaluating church, and he said what's interesting is often those from the 25% are the recognition seekers and they are the authority challengers and they often rise to leadership because the rest of 75%, they, are, they have nothing to win. They just want to just learn and grow. Often these people rise to positions of leadership 
regardless of their character, often from how much movers and shakers they are outside of the church. It was a very interesting evaluation. And then I read this letter from this pastor and his associate pastor, why he left, and it coincides, why he left the church. Listen to what he says. He says, well, he said, I got into ministry because I love people. And he said, what I found out is most people in a church are well-intentioned, they're low-maintenance, and they're gracious. He said, I did find two groups of high-maintenance people. There's one group of high-maintenance people that are needy. They're struggling, broken, and they need God desperately. And that is why I went into ministry. He said, but there's another group of high-maintenance people. I call them the dictators. Under a disguise of godly spiritual jargon, they will try to dictate how the ministry should proceed. They critique everything, and things don't go their way, which they say God's way, they complain. Then they want meetings, and then if things in the meetings don't go their way, they threaten to leave the church with the subtle hint they will take their tithe with them. And then this, this associate pastor said, panicked, people say, did you hear so-and-so is leaving? Why can't the pastors just give in to what they want? So most pastors, this guy writes, return to the pulpit saying what those people want to hear, and they get their paycheck. And he said, I can't live like that anymore. What he's basically outlining is he's outlining how joy stealers operate. It's funny, it's in all of us, believe it or not. One time I made an agreement with some guys in the church. I said, let's fast every Wednesday. And they all agreed. But I didn't specify what a fast means. For me, here's what a fast means. I believe a fast is nothing but water. If I fast all day, I'll have nothing but water. Some people don't view a fast like that. And some of the guys who made this fast with me, they, they didn't view it like that. One guy would eat little thin pretzels every couple hours just to keep himself a little on edge. And he came in my office, and he's eating pretzels. And I said, you understand it's Wednesday? What are you doing? He said, yes, yeah, so? I said, you're eating food. You agreed you'd fast. He's like, I am fasting. I said, you are not fasting. He said, I am too. And he left that, my office. I was so mad. I'm like, Chris, what is wrong? We agreed. He is not living up to his righteous agreement. It was in me. I was mad. I wanted him to stop it. Where is it written that you're not allowed to eat a pretzel if you fast? It's written in my mind. Doggone it. He is less of a Christian than me. The second thing about joy stealers, and it goes along a little bit about what I'm saying here, is that they spy out other people's freedom. Look at verse 4. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our rent to spy on our freedom. That means if you, if I can't do it, You shouldn't be able to. Do you understand? And really, well, you know what that's called? Jealousy. It's really what it's called. It's called jealousy. There's obvious ones. Dress, music, Sabbath, alcohol. Hey, I'm wearing a tie. If you don't wear a tie, I'm kind of upset about that. I don't drink beer. I don't. How dare you on the 4th of July have a beer with your brother? understand what kind of Christian are you pastor 
Do you know what he was doing? But then there's the not-so-obvious things, like having a pretzel when you fast or other things. Let me give you a sad story, but this is true. I used to be part of the commission. We would send groups of people over to Russia for one year. One group was sent to Siberia. They were sharp people. I heard through the leadership of the navigators that this group was sent home four months into their time in Russia. I'm like, man, it must have been bad. What did they do? Was there sin in the camp? And the guy said, well, here's really what happened. In Russia, in this town in Siberia, you couldn't get peanut butter. And so one group of missionaries said they are going to be like the culture around them. Another family had their family send them care packages of peanut butter. One day, the family that wanted to be culturally relevant walked into the home of the people that got care package of peanut butter, saw them eating peanut butter on their bread, and said, what are you doing? Well, we're eating peanut butter. Yeah, but the Russians can't get peanut butter, and we need to be like the culture around us. I don't think they care. <laughs> they, don't really, they don't know what Jiffy peanut butter is. They don't care what Jiff peanut butter. They don't know. It was such a problem that they could not work together anymore and the agency had to send them home because of joy stealing. When I first started the ministry here, I, I did a sermon called Pandora's Box. It was on Romans 14. I pulled out a Pandora's Box. Charlene, you remember that. I pulled out a Pandora's Box, things that cause conflict. I, pulled out movie posters, and I literally pulled out a beer and I poured it into a Moody mug and I said, Moody will keep the devil inside. A number of people left their church because they said they've gone liberal. He put a beer up on the pulpit. How dare him? And some of you probably are like, I agree with that. What is wrong with you? What's wrong with me? We are so, we live by our personal expectations that aren't necessarily Biblical. They're legal. And the third thing then about a joy stealer is this, is that they turned vice, legalism, judgment, criticism, into a virtue. They make a vice sound like a virtue. See, I'm serious about my faith. You're not. You play that drum. That's, that's at parties. I'm serious about my faith. I just want classical music. That's all I'll listen to. They're prudent. See, I don't, I don't need that peanut butter I sacrificed. See? And I'm devout. Do you know what my grandmother would do on Christmas Day? It drove my mom crazy. On Christmas Day, my grandmother would make a turkey. She'd make all the meals. She would call the family to the table. She'd have everybody eat, sit to get ready to eat, and then my grandmother would go into her bedroom and pray the rosary. And they'd say, Ma, my dad would say, Ma, why don't you come in here and eat? No, this is Jesus' birthday. I want to dedicate, I want to dedicate prayer time to him. I'm just abstaining. Isn't that holy? <laughs> no! It's ridiculous, is what it my dad would go, Ma, that's ridiculous. Enjoy Christ's birthday. No, son. No. 
I want him to know how much I love him. I think, I think he, I don't think he cares. But you see, the legalist is in all of us. It's, it's weird. Do you see that guy over there? It's Sunday. He's cutting the lawn. What's wrong with him? I'm going to go put a wrench in his blade so he can never do it again. What's worse, destroying a poor guy's lawnmower? Or, see, it's control. It's weird. It's inside of us. And it's not grace. That's why look at verse 5. Paul says this. We did not. We did not give in to them. For a moment. Do you know why? Is because of this. Grace is too precious to give in. Grace means God did everything. I can't add anything. That is such a precious concept. I'm not going to give in to the legalist. I just am not. Jesus didn't. Look at Luke 7. I believe Jesus often would do things to expose our joy-stealing attitude. I think Jesus had fun revealing to us how prideful we are thinking we can earn our own salvation. And he arranged situations to make people mad. Even when I did that Pandora's box, I knew it would make people mad. But it exposed something. Jesus set up a situation that was a hundred times worse. you got to think through it to see how amazing this is. This is Luke. Chapter 7, verse 36. Jesus is amazing. He really is. Okay, now verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Okay, so the Pharisees having Jesus over. It's quite an honor, you know. This Pharisee is high, so he's probably a leading member of the Jewish society, so the Pharisee invited Jesus over. He should be very... Thankful for that. Respectful. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And that's the way that it said at the table. They recline. When a woman who had lived a sinful life, translation, a prostitute, in that town, so they know her, they probably saw her at 9 o'clock at night when everybody's coming back from the fields and she'd be in the corner. Dress bad. She learned Jesus was eating in a Pharisee house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. That's a lot of money. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair. All of that, to me, is incredibly awkwardly intimate. Her tears came off of her cheek on a bare foot of Jesus, and she wiped his feet with her hair. She touched him. The prostitute touched him. The holy one. How dare she? Prostitutes weren't even allowed in the Pharisee's house. Jesus should have kicked her out right away. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, and you can just hear the anger, worse than mine about the guy eating a pretzel, if this man were a prophet. So, what he's saying is he's, he can't be a prophet. If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. So the implication is a prophet would remain clean and allowing a prostitute to touch him would make him unclean. 
Leviticus, man, you'd stone her. Verse 40, Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Yeah, tell me. What, what do you got to tell me? Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I, I suppose. I suppose. The one, like, what a stupid question. I suppose the one with the bigger debt. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was the proper thing to do. But the Pharisee thought he's above Jesus. He's too good for Jesus, so he didn't do that. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, had not stopped kissing my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say that to the Pharisee. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In other words, grace. It's grace. That's what saves a person. Not legalistic piety and righteousness and rightness and judgment and criticism. Jesus wanted to expose the sin of pride and kill it. So if we go back to Galatians, this is what was going on. He brought Titus because Titus was a Greek. And he didn't need to be circumcised. And he was exposing the anger of these Pharisees, Judaizers. But I'll tell you what, they were influential men. They were men that had a lot of persuading ability. We'll see it next week. But there's a lot of people like that in the church. And often the joy stealers are the most influential and scary. Very scary. So I'd like to ask Paul, but Paul, these men are important. How, how, how can you just not care about what they say? How can you just say in verse 5, we didn't give in to a moment because of the rest, because of the gospel. See, here's the deal about the gospel. I put it like this. The gospel bows to no man. The gospel is something that was created in heaven and perfected in history. Is created in heaven. God gave us the gospel. It will never change. It's immutable. That means you cannot destroy it, nor can you change it, regardless of who you are. It, doesn't, it does not bow to a legalist. Yes, but did you see that that guy tithes an awful lot of money, and he thinks we need to do things this way. The gospel won't be changed because some guy came in here. It does not bow to the apostles. It does not bow to popes. It does not bow to pastors. It does not bow to high-paid evangelists. The gospel doesn't even bow to Oprah. Did you understand that? It doesn't. Listen to what Paul says. Keep reading. It says, We did not, in verse 5, give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. That's what matters, the truth of the gospel. As for those who seem to be important, that would be the apostles. 
Whatever they were makes no difference to me. He's not, one Greek scholar said, he's not mocking them. He's just saying, that doesn't change my opinion about the gospel. It doesn't. Because God does not judge by external appearance means God doesn't bow to people what they look like, how rich they are, how influential, how deep their voices are, how intellectual they are. God's God. His gospel is immutable. It won't change. Those men added nothing to my message, meaning if, Paul, if uh, Peter, James, and John, because they affirmed Paul, doesn't mean it made the gospel right. It already was right. He just came to the Jerusalem Council because he wanted unity. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. It became apparent to them that Paul had the gospel and the gospel transformed Titus. So they confirmed and said, we agree. Go, man, go. Just as Peter had been to the Jews, for God who is at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews was also at work in my ministry as an apostle of Gentiles. I want to stop there for a second and talk about the gospel because some people, some people have taken this to say, Peter's gospel is different than Paul's. Peter's goes to the Jews. Paul's goes to the Gentiles. They're different. Paul's is by faith alone. Peter's is Jesus plus circumcision and Judaism. Let's see if their gospels are the same. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, 10 through 21. What was Peter's gospel? This is his book. So what was his gospel? Verse 10, concerning salvation. So this is about the gospel. Concerning salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. Verse 11, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he preached the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when I spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long ago. So he's saying, okay, so the prophets were writing things down. They didn't get that they were writing what they were writing about, but they knew it was pointing to the Messiah and the sufferings he'd have to go through. Then verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for actions. Be self-controlled. As obedient children, do not conform. Verse 17 since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers in reverence fear. For you know, and here's the gospel, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. So he's saying, your forefathers, man, their life didn't get it. What did? Verse 19, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead, glorified in him, so your faith and hope are in God. So what's his message? You believe in God through Christ's work of atonement. That's what saves you and redeems you. That's Peter's gospel. What's Paul's gospel? Romans chapter 10. Watch how similar it is. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 10 of Romans. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Paul, Peter talked about the resurrection. You will be saved. For it is with your, health, uh, your heart that you believe and are justified and your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when you believe that Jesus died, rose again, and that his blood purchased you because they forgave your sins, you're saved. That's the eternal gospel that's immutable, never be changed, regardless of who changes it. Regardless of who changes it. And if we go back to Galatians, what's interesting is when you really understand grace, it doesn't, the, the fear I think of the legalist is this, if I teach that you're saved by grace alone, you don't have to do anything, then people quit. They'll stop. My contention is just the opposite. When people understand it's grace alone, they will begin to finally start living. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 9. It says in verse 9 of chapter 2, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. So they saw it. So there's unity. Yes, the Jerusalem Council 15 is unified. They're ready to move on. So they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they are going to stick with the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember giving to the poor. That was the very thing we were eager to do. So what Paul's saying is grace hasn't stopped me from living life. I'm already wanting to. He's, all, he's basically... He's telling them, don't worry about it, man. We're not <laughs> going to quit. So this is my contention, is this. Grace sets people free, finally, to serve God. Legalism binds people to please men's expectations so they really don't feel free to serve God. So grace sets people, pe people free to serve God. We no longer under the yoke of men, so we are now free to do what God has created us to do. There's a, I, I love this story, and I'll, I'll use it a hundred times, but I think it just solidifies the truth of what's going on. And I've told this a number of times. This lady was married to this rotten man, terrible man. He would give her a list of things to do while he went to work. And they were about a list of about 20 things, vacuum all the, all the carpets, clean the kitchen, have dinner ready for me at 5.30 and I get home, make sure it's warm, this is what I want, and a whole list of things. And he did not love his wife. He was a jerk. And she would do that list, but she did that list because if he, she did not do that list, he would yell at her. And she would be, she would be in his doghouse again. He'd be cranky. One day he died. She was happy. She felt bad, felt guilty, but she's happy. A year later, she got a job to take care of herself. She's a secretary, and a guy in her, in her building said, hey, what are you doing tonight? She said, what do you mean? He said, would you like to go on a date? They went on a date. They had candlelight dinner. He talked to her the whole time. He asked her questions about herself the whole time. He liked her. 
he asked her, hey, you, can we go out again? She said, sure. He kept taking her out to places they liked to go, but he liked her. They fell in love with each other. He asked her to marry him. She said, absolutely. They were married, and after they got married, he still kept going out with her. He liked her. She loved him. One day, she was while he was at work, she was just cleaning some of the furniture. She cleaned a nightstand, and she opened a nightstand, and out came the old list. And instantly, oh, ah, man, if I don't do this list. And she's like, wait a minute, he's never given me a list. She looked at the list. And not only did she love doing that list for her husband, she did a hundred other things, but he never demanded her to. Why did she do it? She loved him. It's funny, when I first got saved, I got to tell you, before I was saved, and I'll just be really honest with you, the church, the church didn't really care about me too much. I would be one of those people I think the church didn't like. But it's funny, after I got saved, I started going to church, they started caring about what I did all of a sudden. Before I was a Christian, they could care less. After I got saved, they started telling me what to do. And they'd get mad when I didn't do what they wanted me to do. It's funny, they would have their, their different way of telling people how to do the gospel. I just would have relationships with my friends. I wouldn't share the gospel the way they did, which was door to door. And they got mad at me for that. But I would go out with my friends and tell them about Jesus. It was really easy. I remember one time I was listening to a tape and said, D.L. Moody, every day preach the gospel to somebody. You should too. And I felt guilty. Like, man, I'm not preaching the gospel every day. So I decided every day before I go to bed, I'm going to preach the gospel. And I went to this convenience store, and it was getting late. And, man, I had to, I had to preach the gospel because I didn't do it yet that day. So I asked the lady behind the counter, I said, do you, know, uh, uh, do you know Jesus? She said, no. Why? Um, just give me my drink. And I got out of there and I felt so stupid. Like, I'm a failure. I failed again. But it's funny, my sisters would talk to me about Jesus. And I, ah, that's my sisters. That doesn't count. You know what I mean? I kinda, those, are my, those are my friends. They don't count. We have these systems set up that only certain ways to do things count because those people who set them up will get mad at you if you don't do it their way. But when grace comes in, you want to tell your sisters. You want to tell your friends. You just live it at work. You don't need to produce some stinking program to do it. To me, legalism cripples people instead of sets them free. And we have to be very careful that we aren't serving the first husband who's always mad at us. We are serving the second husband who just loves us. And we just want to do it for him because he's great. That's grace. So my question for you is, are you a joy stealer, number one? If you are, be very careful. Be, be very careful because there's a lot of nice people that will come underneath you because they don't want conflict. And they'll say, okay, I'll do it your way. I did that for years. I would read the King James because my brother would get mad at me if I didn't. Because I'm nice. I don't want conflict. And if you're a joy stealer, you can control people. 
Second thing, if you are being controlled by joy stealers, stop it. Let Jesus set you free. Live for him the way he's designed you, and life will be better. Let's pray. Father, I know this is probably an odd message for these guys. I, I just know what grace has done in my life, and I thank you that you've set me free. I just pray that we would allow your spirit to teach each one of us different things. Lead us in different ways. And we just thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit that lives in us, and he'll do just fine teaching us what we need. We love you, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.